Welcome back to the 90 Days New Podcast. Today we are taking a look at the final chapters of the final book of the final testament of God's Word. And as we read through these final chapters, we get to experience how the Word of God ends. And at the same time, we're learning how time itself kind of comes to a conclusion as we see the new heaven and new earth depicted in John's Revelation. Uh, but John's Revelation is not the first book to make reference to the new heaven and new earth. And so he is actually drawing off of some Old Testament material, like he has pretty much done throughout the entire book of Revelation. And this is actually a good learning opportunity for us to see a comparison between the first reference to the new heaven and new earth and this final reference to the new heaven and new earth. Now, most believers, regardless of which category they fall into, and we talked about those different categories or those different lenses that are put on in our last episode, uh, but regardless of whether you're a preterist, a pre-trib premillennialist, a historic premillennialist, an amillennialist, a postmillennialist, regardless of which one of those you are or any of them that even haven't been mentioned, most people understand the book of Revelation when it's talking about the new heaven and new earth as being the beginning of the eternal state. And in that eternal state, this is where Jew and Gentile, people from every nation come and they gather and they worship God forevermore. There's no more really to the story at this point. It, it's eternal bliss with God. People and God are reunited in the fullest sense of the word. That's been the entire biblical narrative up to this point. Humanity gets separated from God and God is fixing the problem. And so whether it's through the tabernacle where he dwells among them or the temple where he dwells among them, whether it's through Jesus Christ who is God with us, or whether it's through the Holy Spirit who is God abiding inside of us, dwelling inside of us, um, the entire Bible is this script that shows God restoring our relationship with him. And when we get to the new heaven and new earth, it is its fullest expression. It can't get any more intimate than that. God and man are dwelling together eternally. So that's agreed upon pretty much across the board. But here's the problem. When you go back to Isaiah chapter 65 and you read the description of the new heavens and new earth, here's what it says. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. We're good at this point. But that's kind of the same thing that's said in the book of Revelation. And then it goes on to say this, But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. Now, this may not cause a lot of you to pause, um, but it should rise. Uh, raise some uh, immediate questions like who are her people? Well, anytime an Old Testament prophet is referencing Jerusalem and then talks about her people, you would probably immediately gravitate toward the idea that this is Jewish people, that these are Israelites. And so this is talking about a restoration of Israel, and that's why he's recreating Jerusalem. And it says, I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. In an Old Testament context, that would be 
the Israelites. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. And, and here's where it really gets interesting. In verse 20, it says, For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer while they are yet speaking. I will hear the wolf and the lamb shall graze together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. So here again, we have some problems, right? We've got children being born, which Jesus said in the eternal state, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. There's no reference to people having children. It doesn't seem like that's even a possibility in the new heaven and new earth. And yet here is a prediction that in the new heaven and new earth, they'll be having children. Not only that, but they'll be dying. They'll be dying. They'll live a hundred years. And so he's saying you'll have a long, full life in the new heaven and new earth and the new Jerusalem, but there will be death. But that doesn't sit well, or I guess that doesn't run parallel to the viewpoint of John the Revelator. When John the Revelator is describing the new heaven and new earth, in verse 4 he says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. Now how do we reconcile these two? Did Isaiah have a different new heaven and earth in mind? Or is John changing what was originally thought out uh, by Isaiah, what he originally prophesied? Did God change his mind on how the end was going to unfold? What do we make of this? Well, I think the primary thing that we can take away from this is that Old Testament predictions are not always the fullest expression of the truth, but rather we see waves of information coming down the pipeline as the biblical narrative unfolds and reaches its conclusion. And so the later books of the New Testament have more, a more clear representation of the truth than the earlier predictions. We see this in the Genesis encounter uh, with um, Adam and Eve when there is a prediction that a son would be born that would crush the serpent's head, but the serpent would bite the heel of the son. That is not a very clear picture, but we later on realize that that was talking about Jesus. But you would have never known all the information about Jesus just from that prediction alone. And so early on, and they may have taken a literal viewpoint of that early on. That would have been, they might have been looking for a literal snake to bite a kid on the heel and for the kid to crush his skull. And so it would be hard to interpret that little saying just by itself. But as other prophets came along and as Moses came along and as uh, other, other mouthpieces of God came and revealed more about this coming son, 
it became more clear what would happen. And by the time Jesus shows up, uh, we can start to really piece together the picture and we can view it more clearly because that progressive revelation has allowed us to build uh, one idea upon another to fill in the entire puzzle. And that's what's happening here. In Isaiah, we get a glimpse of the good times, uh, the glimpse of the, the good life, I should say, uh, and a foretaste of the glorious eschatological conclusion, uh, but it's shrouded in language that would have resonated with that audience in that day. They longed to be 100 years old. They longed to have crops. They longed to have peace between animals that would normally tear each other apart, a wolf and a lamb, and, and so on and so forth. And so that language was used to convey that there was going to be an era where peace is going to encompass the land and where there will no longer be a need to fight and battle and have wars and life expectancy will will be long lived those are things they hoped for that was that was the foretaste of the promise but when we get to the concluding book of the bible revelation it builds upon that and it provides an even more clear picture and so it doesn't mean that people are going to die it means that they're going to um uh, that the isaiah prophecies were just a stepping stone towards the more clear truth that people will live on eternally. And I don't know if Isaiah's people weren't ready to hear that yet, or if it wouldn't have been received, or just God slowly but surely likes to reveal the outcome and the, the future. But that's what's taking place there. We don't have contrasting um, descriptions that are at odds with one another, but one builds upon another. Now, this teaches us something important because we need to apply that principle across the board. There are times where we might look at other uh, doctrines and other prophecies and predictions from the Old Testament, and we can't jump to literal conclusions without considering what the New Testament has to say about it. We can't jump to literal conclusions without seeing what uh, the final outcome is and comparing the two and reconciling the two. This is one of the reasons why I don't believe that there's going to be a literal temple built one day. A lot of the passages that depict a literal temple being built are from Old Testament predictions, uh, like Ezekiel that describes an eschatological temple where uh, one day the Messiah will sit and he'll rule and he'll uh, reign over the people. They'll have perfect sacrifices and so on and so forth. And there are some lenses that read that and say, look, there's got to be a building of a temple because it predicted it. Ethnic Israel has to be restored because it was predicted. And I look and I read in the New Testament and I start to see that the whole people of God are the ones inhabiting New Jerusalem. It's not New Jerusalem because ethnic Israel is entering it. It's New Jerusalem because New Israel is entering it. And so I view the church as the New Israel. Paul even says that much, that we have grafted in. We're the New Israel. He says that it's the circumcised of the heart that are actually Israel, not the circumcised of the flesh. And so our faith, the same faith that Abraham had in God, that's the faith that connects us all as a family of God and as the people of God and as the kingdom of God. And so we're the fulfillment of all the prophecies that are made about Israel in the eschaton. We are the fulfillment of all the prophecies that are made regarding the temple, since we are the temple. 
that is said clearly in multiple places. Jesus said he was building up his church, and that building construction is built on the rock, the chief cornerstone. The cornerstone was the foundation on which the temple was built. Paul says that we are the temple of God in multiple places. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, say that we're living stones being built up into a spiritual house. We are the temple of God. And so I'm not looking for an eschatological temple, a, a literal brick-and-mortar temple. I'm looking at what the Bible already says the temple is, and we are the temple. And, and so I think to not make that connection is the same mistake as looking at Isaiah and looking at Revelation and saying, oh, we must have two different new heavens and new earth. But no, I think Ezekiel, he described the temple in the language of a physical temple because that's what the people then would have understood. And as the biblical narrative unfolds, we get a, a progression in the storyline. And so, just like Isaiah says they die at 100, and now John says they live forever, Ezekiel said there was a temple being built with rivers coming out of it, and the New Testament says there's a temple being built where the Holy Spirit dwells in them, and Jesus said the Holy Spirit is like it will have rivers of living water flowing from the inner man in John chapter 7. Um, so we've got rivers, they're just different rivers. And so as you continue through the book of Revelation and you look in these final chapters, I think you will start to see more and more evidence that supports that idea. The fact that there's no temple in the city, uh, even though the Bible has clearly already made mention of an eschatological temple, it's already made mention in the beginning of Revelation that the people uh, who were righteous would be a pillar in the temple of God. So he's describing the temple in relation to human beings, not to brick and mortar. Uh, we see some of the ordinations of the priests mentioned in chapter 21 of Revelation. We have all these different stones, agate stones, onyx, carnelian, beryl, uh, all, these, all these stones that were a part of the garments that the priests wore uh, because anyone who is a priest and a king is going to be in this new heaven and new earth. And that's the language, language that was used in Revelation 1, and that language carries across all the Testaments. In Israel, when Moses was leading the children of Israel out of Egypt, God says in 19.6, uh, Exodus 19.6, that he was making a kingdom of priests out of Israel. Well, then Revelation goes on to say that the churches are the kingdom of priests, that the people who believe and have faith are a kingdom of priests. Um, and First Peter too, talks about how we are a holy priesthood, not just the Jewish people, but we, the people of God, the church, are a priesthood of believers. And when you get into chapter 22, the, the language is very clear here. It says, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Why is his name on their foreheads? Because the priests in the Old Testament had God's name written on their foreheads. And they are the servants of God at his throne and his servants. It says we'll worship him. That's not a good translation. Latruo means serve. His servants will serve him because they're priests. And that's what priests do. They serve. And it says in verse 5, night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Why are they reigning? 
Why are they reigning? Because they're kings. They're priests and they're kings. A kingdom of priests. Just like Israel was a kingdom of priests. But this is the new Israel in the new Jerusalem. And the new Israel is the church. It's made up of every nation, every tribe, every tongue. In fact, that's what it says at the end of verse 21 and uh, and, or chapter 21 and verse 24 says, by its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Up oh, there's those kings again, kingdom of priests, bringing the glory of God into the new Jerusalem. And they are, they are the nations, that ethnos, same word that would be translated Gentiles, um, but it's all nations, not just Gentiles, it's Jewish people and Gentiles together as one people of God. And so I think this becomes more and more clear as you read through uh, the book of Revelation, especially in these concluding chapters. Uh, but I think comparing it to Isaiah really shed some light on how we interpret the Old Testament prophecies and their fulfillment. You can't always make a literal case for every prediction in the Old Testament. That's just not the way that it unfolds, and this is a very clear picture of that as we've made this comparison. Uh, but a few final words before we close today. I just want to look at some of the things that John says in the conclusion. He says in verse 12 of chapter 22, Behold, I am coming soon, this is Jesus speaking, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. This is the same language that is used to describe God earlier on in the book, and here Jesus is the one who is the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. This is Trinitarian. It proves that Jesus is God. Uh, he is not underneath God, but he himself is God. Just as God is Alpha and Omega, Jesus is Alpha and Omega. Just as God is first and last, Jesus is first and last. He's the beginning and the end, and he is coming soon with judgment. Uh, but then it concludes the book with this. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. That should be the hope of every believer, that Jesus would indeed return soon. We don't say, well, I want Jesus to come back, but first I want dot, dot, dot. No, there's nothing that you could want, nothing that would fill that dot, 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 that would even compare in the slightest to Jesus coming back. The worst day in heaven is better than the best day on earth. And it says, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. He concludes the book with that because the people who hear this, many of them are suffering. Many of them are going through tribulation. They've been going through tribulation. They were going through tribulation during John's day. Millions have spilled their blood for their faith in Christ. Millions have died at the hand of persecutors because they believe in Jesus Christ. Read some of the testimonies of some of the missionaries that have gone to Burma or other places and look at the torment that they have endured. They have lost loved ones. They have been chased and, and beaten. They have been hung upside down for days upon end, hanging by their ankles. I've read these accounts, and we know of many missionaries that have tried. They've gone, and they've just died because the people wouldn't receive them. This is the kind of world we live in, and it's been that way from the writing in this book. And so the people of God need grace. They've ne they needed it then. They need it now. And that is the promise of this book. It, it is a measure of grace extended to us so that we know that God is in control 
and that he will eventually wrap this thing up. And when he comes back, there will be judgment. He will bring to each one what they deserve. Uh, but most importantly, to those who love him and believe in him, it is a welcome reception of Christ because he brings with himself everlasting life in a place of glory. That's all I've got for today. Uh, we'll probably not have another one of these before Christmas, so Merry Christmas to you, and uh, we'll see you next time on 90 Days in